Okay, by way of announcement, the only announcement I'm aware of is that this Saturday morning we're going to have our men's prayer breakfast, but it's open to everybody. And it's going to be BYOB, bring your own breakfast, because we don't know how many people will show up for this special event. So it's open to everybody, and uh, men, women, kids. It's a good opportunity to bring your kids, if they're old enough, to begin to understand some things about uh, politics and government, civics, things that aren't necessarily taught well in the schools today, but to meet uh, politicians, to meet people who are running for office, uh, two of whom are running for county-wide offices, one of whom is running for a state representative, and that's Lacey Hull, and she's running for the state Texas state representative in House District 138, which is basically the area between I-10 and 290. I think part of it in some places may go west of the Beltway, but mostly it's inside the Beltway. But that is going to be a battleground district this time, so that's important to find out about her. And then Fred uh, Schuchart, who is, uh, has, been with the, um, has been a judge, and then um, he's running again for the State District Court of Appeals, and then Mary Nan Huffman, who is running for Harris County District Attorney. And what I've asked all of them to do is to talk a little bit about what it is that their office, that they're running for, is all about. Why is that significant? And a lot of people don't know exactly what a county district attorney does as opposed to uh, other offices in the county, what a... Uh, what goes on in the courts. Those are always those down-ballot issues, and everybody gets there and goes, well, wait a minute, who am I supposed to vote for? And we don't know anything much about those people. And so Fred's going to talk some about that. What is going on with the current person who is in the district attorney's office and why this is a problem, as well as what's going on in the different state courts and what's, what's happening there. So it's a bit of a civics lesson for everybody to know what is, uh, what is happening and get some information there, as well as to find out what, why these people are running for office, what is significant about that, and what they're uh, hoping to accomplish. So that will start at 7.30. They're going to all come here by 7.30 so that they can meet people and schmooze and have coffee and everybody can, can visit and get to know them. And then from 8 to 9, 20 minutes for each one, they can talk about uh, their particular office, what they're going to do, and that kind of a thing, and leave you know, what, however much time they have, but leave at least five minutes for question and answer. So, Pastor Young, that's something you can, a lot of your people you know live in this district and live in this part of town, so they're definitely invited to come on Saturday morning, and we can tell you more about that. Uh, since you just walked in, but um, yeah, we're going to, on the men's prayer breakfast, we're having these three people running for local office, countywide office, and this Texas district. Also, we're going to come back with three more people in mid-October. So a lot of people, some of us will have already voted by then, but uh, uh, that's going to be important. I'm going to uh, get try to get Joe Dana, Dana, who's running for county sheriff, as well as a couple of other people to be with us uh, at that time. So, yes? 
and that will be live streamed, okay, for you live streamers out there who wish to um, wish to see this because you don't want to get out or you're still staying somewhat quarantined, uh, we will live stream it. We're not going to record it. We're not going to put it up because you, you just we don't want to be in a situation. There's already been one situation where someone in a public office uh, said things in the uh, private arena of our Chafer Conference who somebody found some things that he said uh, this was seven or eight years, five or six years ago, and it has just created all kinds of problems for him uh, politically in Tennessee. So we don't want that kind of a scenario uh, to start again. So uh, we're going to be very careful with that, not recording it, not putting anything up on on the Internet. How shall a young man cleanse his way? By taking heed thereto according to thy word. Thy word have I hid in my heart that I might not sin against thee. Thy word is a lamp unto my feet and a light unto my path. Jesus prayed to the Father, sanctify them in truth. Thy word is truth. For the grass withers and the flower fades, but the word of our God shall stand forever. Before we get started, we will make sure that we're properly prepared spiritually to study the word. Scripture uses a lot of different descriptions for living the Christian life. We're to walk by means of the Spirit, abide in Christ, walk in the light, walk in the truth. All of these are juxtaposed to the negatives, walking according to our sin nature, not abiding in Christ, walking in darkness, and uh, not walking in the truth. And so when we sin and the sin nature is in control, we're not walking by the Spirit. We're not uh, in a position where we can grow and advance spiritually, so we have to confess sin to recover from uh, our rebellion, our sinful rebellion against God. And so uh, we always begin with a few moments of silent prayer, and then I'll open in prayer. So let's bow our heads together, and after a few moments, I will open in prayer. Let's pray. Our Father, we come to you because we know that you are the eternal creator God of the universe, that you rule over all things, and as part of your ruling, you give your creatures volition. You give us the ability to choose our destiny, to choose how we will live our lives. And Father, as a result of that and sinful rebellion, this world is in a terrible mess, but it always has been. It's not as bad as it has been at some times, and it is definitely worse for some people and some believers in some areas than it's been in their lifetimes or in perhaps a few hundred years. Father, we pray especially for our nation at this time. It seems like the last two or three elections have been crossroads but these are significant times. We are in a battle for the very soul of this country. The foundation of this country was on the Judeo-Christian worldview. And, Father, we know that that has been eroded over the, especially the last century. And we know that that is the only way that, that we will maintain stability and peace. And we are to pray, according to First Timothy 2, 
uh, 1 through 3, that we are to pray for peace. We are to pray for our leaders that we might have a stable uh, economy, a stable government, that we may have an environment wherein we can faithfully teach your word and evangelize without worrying about government resistance, oppression, without worrying about uh, people attacking us and demonstrating. And Father, we pray that you might continue to give uh, us a stable government, people who understand the importance of law and order and the need to educate people according to the truth of history and the truth of of your word. So we pray for our nation and for our leaders, for our president, for all our representatives. We pray for each one that they might come to understand the truth and live out their political lives in light of that truth. Now, Father, for us, as we study your word tonight, may we come to understand what it means to praise you, to talk about you with gratitude and thankfulness for all that you've done for us. And we pray this in Christ's name. Amen. All right, open your Bibles with me to Psalm 30. Tonight is sort of a transition lesson. It will be a transition because we will spend uh, probably two weeks, maybe three, but we will spend two weeks uh, at least on Psalm 30. And the reason we're going to Psalm 30 is because it is the natural a consequence of the end of Second Samuel, which we concluded last time in Second Samuel 24. After David, uh, David is forgiven by God uh, for his sin of arrogance and self-sufficiency, and the nation is forgiven by God for the sin of self-sufficiency and arrogance, then God forgives them, and David offers a sacrifice of of praise. It's a burnt offering and a peace offering on the threshing floor of Aruna the Jebusite. And that's what we studied last time and uh, at the end of Second Samuel. And then what D- David does as he is preparing his son Solomon and the people for the construction of a temple that will be built on that site on the what we now call the Temple Mount, It's Mount Moriah where Abraham had uh, gone to, in obedience to God, to sacrifice his son, which God stayed his hand and taught him a spiritual lesson. But it is that same location is where the temple is built. And so David does many, many things uh, in preparation for the temple. And one of the things he did was he wrote Psalm 30 as the dedication psalm that would be sung at the dedication of the temple. So basically all Solomon was going to have to do was come along and follow the directions and put all the pieces together because David had already uh, done everything. So the focus in Psalm 30 is that it is a praise psalm, and so we're going to be learning what it means to praise God. But to get the context, I wanted to go back and just review the last four verses in 2 Samuel 24, 22. Remember the context. David had committed the sin of arrogance and self-sufficiency in that he wanted to number the people. It wasn't just a census, it's his motivation. A right thing done for a wrong reason is wrong. 
And David is doing something that is not in and of itself sinful, but because he did it out of pride to see how great his an army would be that he could f- field, even though all of his enemies had been defeated and the nation is now living in a time of peace. And there were no enemies left to fight. He had been given victory by God over all the enemies. He's now moved from the test of adversity, which had characterized much of his life, to the test of prosperity. And he fails. And he gets prideful, and so does the nation. They relax. They're not dependent upon the Lord. And so they are resting and looking around saying, look at everything that we have done. And so God brought a plague upon the nation. Actually, he was going to discipline the nation, gave David three options. David chose the, the, he didn't choose one of the three options. He said, I'm going to just put it in your hands, God. You pick the one and I'm going to depend upon your grace. And God uh, chose the three days of, of the plague. And this was a horrific situation. And 70,000 of the men who were of the of the warrior class died in in that plague so that's the background and god leads david to up onto the threshing floor floor of aruna the jebusite remember it was the jebusites who originally inhabited the city of salem that we know of today as jerusalem and it was known as jebus and the people who lived there were the Jebusites, and Aruna is obviously a believer. Just another example of how in Israel they assimilated foreigners. Even to this day, Israel has a fantastic program of assimilating those who make aliyah. That's the Hebrew word for uh, immigration. They immigrate to Israel, and if they come from a country that is advanced, an industrial country, and they're educated, it's not as much of an education and assimilation process, but they have a lot to come from, um, from many of the Arab countries and from other areas in the Soviet Union and places like that, Ethiopia, where they haven't received much education. They don't know anything about speaking Hebrew. They don't even speak English. Uh, English is commonly spoken in, in Israel. And so they live for a year in an assimilation uh, camp. And they are well taken care of, and they are taught Hebrew so that at the end of a year they can be uh, fluent in Hebrew and function in Hebrew and read Hebrew and read unpointed Hebrew, which is, uh, that means there's no vowels in the language, it's just a consonant. So they learn all of that. They learn a skill, they learn a trade, they learn the how to enter into the culture and to make the the beliefs of the culture their beliefs. And that is what it, it, immigrants should do. Otherwise, it creates a problem like you have in the Balkans where there's uh, much division. You just have a lot of people maintaining their uh, ethnic beliefs, their their heritage from whatever country they're from, and they don't assimilate into a country. And that's what we've been seeing as a real problem throughout Western Europe and throughout the United States. There needs to be this kind of, of an assimilation, and it's not racist, and it's not arrogant, and it's not any of the... Uh, horrible things that those who want to destroy America 
Because that's how you destroy any country. Is It's an invasion when you have a lot of people coming in from another country and not learning the language, not assimilating to the heritage and the culture of the people uh, of the nation, then they basically become a, a second state within a state. And you have many other states within a state. And so this this is not the way to create a homogenous society. And that's what's necessary. It doesn't mean everybody thinks the same or believes the same. It doesn't mean you're not going to have liberals versus conservatives because we've always had, you know, those different uh, beliefs. But uh, it means that everybody has an understanding of what makes America, America. And they uh, are all in favor of that. And so if you don't have that, if you don't have that commonality, it's like what the prophet Amos wrote. If two are not in agreement, how can they walk together? It's impossible for two people to work towards a common goal if they're not in agreement on the goal. If one wants to go to one direction, the other wants to go in the other direction, and they, they, they can't pull together to accomplish the task. So Israel, here was a guy, Aruna, he's a Jebusite. He's been assimilated into the nation. He is a believer. He is adopted like, like Ruth, the great-grandmother of David, who was a Moabitess. And she then, uh, after her husband dies and uh, her father-in-law dies, her brother-in-law dies, she is going to be loyal to her mother-in-law, Naomi. And she says, where you go, I will go. Your people will be my people and your God will be my God. And that should be part of the oath of, of, uh, immig- of immigration, that they will adopt the heritage, the culture, the backgrounds, the religious framework of the country uh, that they're going into. So Aruna is clearly a believer, and he says to David, when David is up there, uh, David wants to uh, build an altar and sacrifice to the Lord, and Aruna, very grace-oriented, offers everything to David. He'll give him the animals for the sacrifice. He will give him the all of the implements that he needs in order to uh, sacrifice the animal and to offer the burnt offering, all of the wood, everything. He says, look, here are oxen for a burnt sacrifice. Burnt sacrifice after you kill the animal on the altar, then you light a fire and everything is burned up. It goes up to God and it, it's called a holocaust offering because everything is burned and goes up in smoke, ascending to God because you're offering everything to God that, that is his in, in thankfulness to him. So the oxen for a burnt sacrifice, threshing implements and the yokes of the oxen for wood so that David doesn't have to do anything All of these, he says, O king, Aruna has given to the king, and Aruna said to the king, May the Lord your God accept you. Now, he's not saying he's not his God, but he's emphasizing that to David. This is is Yahweh your God, and may he accept your offering. And then David says to Aruna, No, but I will surely buy it from you for a price. David recognizes that, that he's not going to, offer a sacrifice that doesn't cost him anything. That's sort of a, uh, uh, that just doesn't work. A sacrifice costs you something. It's inherent in 
the language. And so he's not going to take from Aruna what he needs for a sacrifice to God. And he says, I'm not going to offer burnt offerings to the Lord with that which costs me nothing. I need to offer this to the Lord. It is for my sins and for the sins of the people, and it won't work if it costs me nothing. So David bought the threshing floor, that whole area that is on top of Mount Moriah. Today, the Temple Mount and the the wall around that, about 23 acres. So David bought that for 50 shekels of silver. And in the last verse of 2 Samuel, we read, And David built there an altar to the Lord and offered burnt offerings and peace offerings. Now, the burnt offerings are necessary. First, you have this in the order. You have your sin offerings and then your burnt offerings as you're offering everything to God. And the peace offerings recognize that you have been restored to fellowship with God. And the the meat from the uh, peace offerings is all distributed to the people around so that they have this this meal that is provided by this this sacrifice. So the the peace offerings uh, talk about the peace that you now have with God because you have been forgiven, you have been cleansed, and you have been uh, there's been a restoration of fellowship. And the result is in verse in the last part of the verse. So the Lord heeded, listened to, responded to the prayers for the land. And the plague was withdrawn from Israel. And the picture here doesn't say this specifically, is that God does this before the three days are finished. So this is an act of grace where he restrains his discipline on the nation due to the fact that David has humbled himself, the people have humbled themselves, and this national sacrifice has, has taken place. And so that is the framework for understanding Psalm 30. So uh, at Psalm 30, as we go to the beginning, we read in the first, in the superscription at the beginning, and this is part of the original inspired text, that this is a psalm, and the way it is translated in the New King James Version is really, really awkward. Um, you know, no, many times I have talked to you about the importance of where you place your punctuation. And so there's no punctuation in the Hebrew, but it's indicated by the prepositions. And so probably the best way to have translated this, if they're going to do it that way, is a psalm, a song at the dedication of the house, comma. And then the of David should be translated as by David. He is the author of the psalm. Okay, so that would be the correct way the New American Standard Bible uh, translates it this way, a psalm, a song at the dedication of the house. So we're going to look at what that describes, but many times in the scriptures and in the psalms, the temple is referred to uh, not by the normal word for the temple, which is hekal, and uh, it, but by the word bayit, which is the word for house. So the dedication of the house is a reference not to David's palace, but to the house of the Lord, uh, the temple. And then notice it punctuates it with the period and then says a psalm of David. 
the Hebrew construction there is a, a preposition in the Hebrew which is prefixed to the word David, and it's used over and 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 over again through all the Psalms that David wrote. That's how it designates the author. So this is called the author- authorial lamed. It's just the letter L. That's the prefix for to or by and ind- indicating the author of something. And uh, what the other verse that we see that is significant in understanding this is that in verse 6, David talks about his, what his sin was. And it says, now in my prosperity, which is not the best translation, the word is in my ease. When I had it easy, when there were no problems, I said, nothing can touch me. That's a paraphrase of what that means. Nothing can touch me. Look at what I've done. I've secured the kingdom. I've built all this. And he's leaving God out of the equation. And this is not just a sin of of arrogance on his part, but it's a sin of arrogance and self-sufficiency on the whole nation. The nation as a whole failed the test of prosperity. And the historical reality is, is that no nation in history has passed the test of prosperity. And very few human beings ever pass the test of prosperity because as soon as we start thinking that, that, well, I don't have any problems anymore and look at what I've done, then God is going to bring discipline into our lives. And we have to recognize that everything that we are, everything that we have, no matter how much work we may have put into something, it's God that gave the increase. It's God that used that. Uh, I can't tell you how many people in this world, in this country, have worked hard, have gotten great educations and great abilities, and they've never accomplished anything for a lot of different reasons. But God keeps a lot of people down because he knows that if they were made prosperous, then they would completely forget about him. And so uh, this is something that is, that is extremely, uh, extremely important. Now, as we get ready to look at this psalm, first thing, I just want to m- m- mention a couple of things to pay attention to before we get into it. Uh, in, the first, in the first three verses, David is going to talk about his praise to God. And he is going to then explain why he is praising God. He sa- and the way he praises God is interesting. He's not saying, uh, using the word, I, I praise God, uh, hallelujah, or praising God, something of that nature, using the word hallel, which is the primary word for, uh, for praise. He says, I will extol you. And what we see is the root idea of extol is I'm going to elevate you. I'm going to uh, lift you up. I am going to make you the focus of attention. But it has as its root meaning that idea of lifting you up. And uh, he says, O Lord, for you have, and then the next word is a different word. It doesn't have the, the, the primary meaning of being lifted up, but that's the idea. So first of all, he talks about, I'm going to lift you up, God, because you lifted me up. And we sort of miss that word play the way it's uh, translated into the English. And then he is going to talk about, uh, about God. Eight times in these 12 verses, he uses the word Yahweh, 
which is translated with usually in most English Bibles, it uses uh, small caps for Lord, and that indicates that it's translated uh, Yahweh, and twice he refers to Yahweh as my Elohim, my God. He does that once in verse 2, and then again when you get down to to verse 12. So there are two times that he talks about God, uh, Yahweh, as his God. And so when he uses Yahweh, remember this is the name of God that is most intimately connected with the Mosaic Covenant. And it is a reminder that God is in covenant with the nation, but also by this time God has given David that personal covenant we studied in Second Samuel 7. And so it is a reminder that Yahweh is David's covenant God. He has entered into a covenant with David that he has promised that he will uh, make David's name great and that he will make the house of David great and that it is through David, David's line, that the Messiah will come. In verse 3, we note that he, and it doesn't come through well in the English, it says uh, at the end of verse 3, you have kept me alive that I, uh, no, excuse me, the first part, O Lord, you brought my soul up from the grave. And in the Hebrew, that is Sheol. And so we have to come to understand what, what that means. How did uh, David use this, that he is brought up from Sheol? And it's clear from the parallelism that you have kept me alive that I should not go down to the pit. So it's two things there. We've seen the language of you lifted me up. Uh, Lord, I'm going to lift you up. You lifted me up, and you didn't let me go down. So you have this up and down uh, movement that's going on there. Uh, and then he says that um, that God kept him from going down to the pit. So we've got to talk about the meaning of Sheol and why that is, uh, that is significant. And then we come down to his, his call to the people to praise, sing praise to Yahweh, you saints of his, in verse 4, and give thanks at the remembrance of his holy name. And that gets us at the very heart of the idea of praise. It is giving thanks uh, to God in remembering who he is and what he has done for us. When we think about at, at the remembrance of his holy name, when you look at the idea of his name, that relates to his, his essence, and so we were reminded of things that several times, and we'll see this when we get there, uh, as we go through the scriptures, especially the Psalms, there's this emphasis on God's, uh, the antiquated uh, King James hallowed name in the um, disciples' prayer, wrongfully called the Lord's Prayer in Matthew. He says, hallowed be thy name. It's the same thing. It's your, let your name be set apart or sanctified. Let your character be highlighted and set apart and sanctified. And so this is a theme that runs all the way through Scripture. And then it sort of reaches a high point in this opening introduction where he says, for his anger is but for a moment. And notice in the English, is but for is in italics, which means it doesn't have a Hebrew equivalent. It's saying David reaches this emotional pitch where he's excited about what what God does, and he says his anger a moment. 
He doesn't mention the verb, his anger a moment. Now, moments for God can last a long time. Isaiah says that their discipline is going to last for a moment, and it lasted for 70 years when they're in the Babylonian captivity. So remember, God's watch moves differently than your watch. Okay, so anger for a moment, grace for a lifetime. So even though you God takes us through discipline and difficult times, it's just really on the scale of time and eternity, it's just a blink. It's just there for a, a moment when we compare it to everything, but his grace towards us, his goodness, his favor toward us is for life. And then he has a parallel to that idea, weeping for a night. Weeping may endure for a night, but joy comes in the morning. And anybody who has gone through some really tough times in their life uh, should memorize this verse. This is a tremendous source of comfort to realize that whatever you may be going through right now, as significant and serious and difficult as it may seem right now, it will change. It might not change before you're taken to be with the Lord. It depends on where you are. If you're early in life, that you'll probably be out of it within a year or two. But if you're late in life and you hit some really difficult tests in your senior years, then the Lord will take you home and there will be joy everlasting as you've never imagined. And so that is really the centerpiece of this tremendous psalm. And then in verse 6, he begins to talk about his sin. Now, I want to remind you that this isn't a confession psalm, okay? This isn't where David is confessing, but in many praise psalms, David will or the psalmist will uh, go back and give a brief summary of the sin and that God and the discipline and how and the suffering and how God delivered him uh, from that. So he says, "In my prosperity, in my ease, in my self-sufficiency, I said I'll never be moved." And then he said, and we'll have to spend some time on this when we get there, Lord, by your favor, by your grace, you have made my mountain stand strong, but you hid your face, and I was troubled. That's, a, that's powerful the way it is written in the Hebrew. And then what's his response? And that's what comes in verse 8. I cried out to you, O Lord, and to the Lord I made supplication. So it's prayer, refocus, turn back to God, and then he explains, uh, goes through that, and he says, it concludes that part of his prayer with the supplication, listen to me, O Lord, have mercy on me, Lord, be my Azer, be my help, my Azer, be my helper, be my helper, you have turned for me my morning into dancing, that's not morning like good morning, that's mourning for grief, you turn my grief into dancing. And so no matter how dark the times may be, God is the God who transforms your mourning into dancing. And uh, taken away all of the signs of that grief, the sackcloth, clothed him with gladness. And then he concludes at the very end, O Yahweh my God, I will give thanks to you forever. 
So he comes to that end. You have the giving of thanks uh, there, and you have the giving of thanks back in verse 4. It's as if that phrase divides this into two sections. And so the focal point in the fact that he is extolling, this is your topical sentence, when you look at verse 1, I will extol you, I will praise you. What does it mean to praise God? It means basically to be thankful for what God has done in intervening in your life and telling others about it. And so we have to learn some of the things that are related to praise. And this psalm is uh, one of two types of psalms that are praise psalms. The first one is this type is called a declarative praise. And the second is called a descriptive praise, two different kinds of praise psalms. And a declarative praise is when uh, the psalmist is giving thanks for something specific that God has done. Uh, It is a response to some way in which God has intervened in the life of the person And now they are going to tell us what God did. They're not going to focus on themselves. Now, one of the problems we have today is a lot of people really don't know how to give thanks to God, and they get up and they talk a lot about the problem. And you notice when David writes about this and he talks about the problem, you don't see anything there where he says, You delivered me from the plague. The plague threatened his life. You delivered me from the plague. Now, how many people could get up in church and say, thank you, Lord, for delivering me from the plague and sing a hymn to that effect? Well, not too many people at all. See, the Psalms are written in a more general sense so that everybody can understand that just as David's life was threatened in one way, Our lives may be threatened in another way, and so we can uh, understand and relate to the message of the psalm. And the focal point in a declarative praise is not on the problems I had. Nobody knows the problems I've got. Nobody knows. We talk about it. How many times have you been in a Thanksgiving service and people start standing up and they talk about all their problems? The the Psalms don't focus on the problem. They focus on what God did to solve the problem because the focal point in praise isn't me. The focal point in praise is all about God. It is all about what God has done. And so we need to understand that, that when there is praise, the praise focuses on God's act of intervening in our lives, and it's joyful there's a sense of, of enthusiasm and excitement about, I was in this situation. I, the walls were closing in on me. We don't need to know how the walls were closing in on you. It could have been health. It could have been money. It could have been your kids or your parents. But the walls were closing in on me. I had no way out. And God intervened in a tremendous way. And then talk about what God did. And that's the focal, puts the focal point on God. So praise is in one sense this outburst. There, there's language here uh, that, that relates to that when you go through the language of praise that it's, it's like this, this outburst. You can't restrain yourself. You're just so excited that what God has done in delivering you. And so praise has that idea of enjoying what God has done so much that we're talking about it. 
If you if you were to win the lottery, that may be a bad example. Anybody who wins the lottery doesn't want to talk about it. But if something great happens to you, you've been diagnosed with cancer, and you go in to uh, the doctor, and the doctor says, well, we can't find any trace of the cancer, you're so excited about that, you're telling everybody about it because you are so relieved. And that's the idea. It's part of our occupation with God, our occupation with Christ, that we want to talk about who he is and what he has done. And so uh, it's a combination of being thankful, a combination of being relieved and revived because we've had this, this burden. Even though we're to cast our burdens on the Lord and he will sustain us, most of the time we have a tug of war with God and our burdens. God, you take it. No, I want it back. You take it. No, I want it back. And we go back and forth in this tug of war rather than just saying, okay, God, I'm putting it on you. I'm casting all my cares upon you, and you take care of it, and I'm going to forget about it because we don't do that. But that is exactly what we need to do. So when we are praising God, we are joyful, we're enthusiastic, we're relieved, and above all, it's related to thanks. We are grateful to what uh, God has done. And so the problem, the focus isn't on our problem, but on God's intervention and what we learn about God in his intervention. It's very God-centered, extremely God-centered, not me-centered. And so praise in its most fundamental form is simply telling people what God did in your life today or this week or last week and uh, giving God the glory, giving God all the credit for having solved everything and not getting caught up in telling everybody about all of the detailed promises that we had. And so Psalm 30 expresses David's praise his reflection on the event, which is clearly there. But if you just read through the psalm and you weren't thinking about Second Samuel 24, you would, wouldn't connect the dots because he doesn't talk about the plague. He doesn't talk about how many people were killed. He doesn't talk about uh, the, going to the Temple Mount. None of those things. He talks in, in broad general sense so it can relate uh, to other people. So he, uh, remember what happens with David as we look at the beginning of this psalm is that, that David had planned everything for the temple. God revealed the blueprint to him. He revealed uh, the, the, um, uh, the plans to him. David then had the plans, you know, they're, they're drawn up. It's given to, to uh, his son uh, uh, Solomon. And Solomon is given all, David organizes all the, all the precious metals that are used, all the jewels that are used, all the fabric that's used, all of the, all of the lumber, all of the stonework, everything that goes into it. He just, God just told him, you can't build it. So he puts all the pieces together, everything gets lined up, gives Solomon the, um, the plans. David writes basically the hymn book that they will sing in praising God in, in the temple. And that's what we have as, uh, you know, all of the Davidic Psalms. And 
all of this is in preparation so that when David dies, then all Solomon has to do is follow the, follow the directions and and put it all together. And so this is what this psalm is talking about. Now, I just talked about declarative praise, and you have all the verse references at the bottom. These are all the different psalms that relate to declarative praise. And then when you have descriptive praise, they usually begin with something along the order of praising God. But the focus in a descriptive praise is it just focuses on who God is and what he has done in in the process. So when we look at verse 1 and it says, I mean the, the, the superscription, a song at the dedication of the house of the Lord, here's two verses where the term house of the Lord, using the same language, bayit, which is the Hebrew word for house, uh, where that's used. Psalm 23, 6, a verse that is familiar to many Christians, surely goodness and mercy shall follow me all the days of my life, and I will dwell in the house of the Lord forever. And Psalm 27, 4, one thing I have desired of the Lord, that will I seek, that I may dwell in the house of the Lord all the days of my life, to behold the beauty of the Lord and to inquire in his temple. So this is how uh, God set it up. Now, why is the temple so important? Why was the temple so important? Well, one reason the temple is so important, as we have seen in our sort of panorama of, of history, is that God, God's original intent in the Garden of Eden was to dwell among his people. But because of sin... Adam and Eve were expelled from the garden, and God had to set up a battalion of angels, an army of angels, to surround uh, the garden to prevent them from re-entering to have access to the tree of life. We see that at the end of time, when we go to Revelation chapter 21 and 22, there is a creation of a new heavens and new earth, and God the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit dwell on the earth with man. Uh, we often think, well, I'm going to spend eternity in heaven. He'll be awful lonely. We're not going to spend eternity in heaven. We spend eternity in the new heavens and the new earth, and God takes, makes his dwelling with us on the new heavens and new earth, and there's no sun or moon because the light of God's glory illuminates everything. So it's a different kind of universe than what we, what we have today. Now, God is giving, uh, gave Moses direction for the first place where God dwelt after the flood. You go from the flood all the way to uh, Mount Sinai in uh, Exodus chapter, chapter 20 and following, where God is not dwelling on the earth with man. And he is going to come back and take up his dwelling. But the first thing God has to do is give them instructions. And so in Exodus chapters 25 to 30, Moses receives the instructions just as David, just as God told David, gave him the blueprint for the temple. God gave Moses the blueprint for the tabernacle. And God gives this, and it's all laid out in those chapters of six chapters in Exodus that Moses learns all that there is they need to know to build the tabernacle in the wilderness. And then there is an, uh, 
then there's a distinct break in the narrative. And in Exodus 31 to 34, there's this horrible rebellion that takes place. And, and Moses is where? Moses is up on Mount Sinai. He's still receiving the revelation of the law, not just the Ten Commandments, but all 613 commandments of the, of the law. And God says, what's that sound I hear? Sounds like the people are getting in trouble. And so he sends Moses back down. Uh, to see what the problem is. And then when he comes down, he sees the people are having a big orgy, and they are they have convinced uh, Aaron to build this golden calf, which uh, an idol, and they're calling that golden calf Yahweh. This is the God that delivered us, uh, delivered us from Egypt. And so it's this horrible rebellion. God judges uh, the nation at that point. He, God threatens to completely wipe them out and start all over with Moses. But Moses interceded with God. We've studied this where Moses, this was part, partially a test. Moses, do you really understand the issues that I'm, uh, that I'm not really going to destroy them? God is just testing Moses to see if Moses will uh, take a stand uh, as a priest and intercede for the people, which is what Moses did. And he intercedes. God gives the law to them again because Moses had broken the tablets already, so God gives the law again. He renews the covenant with Israel. And what do we have? We have forgiveness and restoration. That's at the center of understanding the presence of God in the tabernacle and the temple is because what we have is a a need to have a place where the people could meet God, where there could be uh, forgiveness, cleansing, and restoration, and the realization of peace between man and God, where there's this restoration of fellowship. And so the tabernacle is the location for that to happen in, in uh, what I call the God's mobile home, uh, for the next uh, three to four hundred years, until you get to where David uh, d- dedicates the temple, Solomon Solomon uh, builds the temple. But the second half, uh, or the last part of Exodus, actually in Exodus thirty-five to forty, is when the temple is put together. So you have the directions for building it. Then there's this sin, and then there's the building of it. Do you see a parallel? See, sometimes we don't stop and look at the big picture. See, David gets all the instructions for building the temple, and then there's this sin of the people that's judged in the, in the plague incident in 2 Samuel 24, and then what happens at the beginning of 1 Kings? Solomon begins to build the temple after, uh, after David dies. So... It, there, there's an order there. Now, what we know from reading uh, the episode in, in, in Exodus is that that Moses is up on the mountain. He hears the, the people in their, having their party, their orgy down below, and he comes down, and he ha- doesn't even have all the instructions yet for building the, the tabernacle. And so the sin occurs, and then he gets the rest of the instructions, and then he builds. So the story in Exodus is laid out chronologically. It's laid out in a pattern so that um, the people can understand uh, what God provides, and then the people, be- through sin, 
cause a break in the fellowship with God, and then uh, they need a place where they can come and make peace with God where there's, uh, where there's reconciliation. So you see these kinds of patterns that take place all the way through Scripture because God is not only teaching doctrine through the minutia of a verse, but he teaches it through the uh, macro narrative of, this, of the Scripture over and over again, both the uh, overall narrative as well as the details and the smaller stories all reinforce uh, reinforce one another. And so as we come to the, the beginning of this verse, uh, David is going to focus on his praise of God. He says, I will extol you, O Yahweh. Why is he going to praise God? That's the next line. For you have lifted me up and have not let my foes rejoice over me. So here he's going to give two reasons, but he doesn't stop there because verse 2 and verse 3 will continue to explain all that God has done in uh, lifting David up. The first word that we see here is the word extol, which is based on a uh, Hebrew word that looks to you like it's rum, but it's room, okay? That's a, a long U there for the vowel. And it means to for something to be high, to be exalted, to be lofty, or to be lifted up. And so it's, it's translated extol in most translations or another synonym uh, that's different from what's in the second, uh, second line is so that they're, they're, they're not exact synonyms, but they mean almost the same thing. David is, is a play on words here. David is going to lift God up because the God has lifted him up. And it's, it's interesting to see how this goes. So we look at that word for praise, and I want to run through some praise words that we have in, in Scripture. Because when you look at the mosaic of all of these different words that are used to describe praise, it gives us a, a fuller sense of what it means to praise God. And most people, unfortunately, because of shallow teaching, think that to praise God means to say, praise God. And I know when I was younger and I was working in a camping environment and there were a lot of very young believers, young chronologically in their physical life as well as young, that they, they really wanted to adopt what they thought of as a Christian demeanor. And you heard a lot of what I call call God words, and they would just. And you see this when you go to a lot of churches today. People feel like, well, when they go to church, they have to say, well, just thank God and bless you and praise God and all and all. It just goes on and on, but there's no depth in them. This this is an example of a baby, a baby Christian, who thinks that's what it means to live the Christian life. So in one sense, there's nothing wrong with that. Because babies are going to act like babies. You can't tell a baby to act like a 15-year-old or a 30-year-old. They have to go through that growing process, but that's, that's, that's part of it. So praise is a lot more than simply saying praise God. Now, the first word that we have here is the word halal. And halal is the Hebrew word which means praise. It is the opening 
of the word hallelujah, hallelujah. Those are the three parts to that word. Hallel means to praise, and in that word, it's in the imperative, which is indicated by the you, hallelujah. That means it's a second person plural. Y'all, praise. Yah, you praise Yahweh. So you don't praise God by saying hallelujah. That's what you're saying. So I'm going to praise God by telling everybody to praise God. That doesn't make sense. You praise God by talking about what God has done, describing how he's intervened in your life. You have content to it. It's not just saying, I want to, pra- I want to praise God for all the things he did. Let's, let's think a little more creatively and precisely about what's going on. And so this word has a range of meaning like most words, and it has the idea of praise or shout for joy, shout for jubilation, to sing praises. But see, in our culture, in in what's happened in the superficiality of contemporary worship is they restrict praise to singing choruses. But this that's not what this is talking about. It's talking about telling people on an everyday basis of what God did. I'm just so glad I've been praying about this and God intervened. And and it's just amazing. So that's the idea, and it can mean to sing praises, but that's only one narrow, narrow part of it. Now, the second word that we see here is the word seer, which is used in the uh, superscript, a song. That's what it means. So the, the idea is that it is a song. It is a song of praise, and that is going to be uh, picked up a little later on again in, in this particular psalm. Then we have this word, zamar, which has the idea of singing also. And one form of that word, when you take it from a verb form to a noun form, you just put an M at the beginning, is mismore. And so that's actually what it says at the beginning. It says a mismore. That's the first word. We translate it psalm, but that's what it is. It's a psalm. It's a particular kind of hymn. And the... Uh, the verb is used when you get, we get down to verse 4 and we read, sing praise to the Lord. That is zamar. So we sing praise to God. That's one form of praising God. Then you have th- this word, ranan. Ranan has the idea, give a ringing cry. This is shouting for joy. And sometimes in our uh, anglo Scotch-Irish heritage with stiff upper lip and everything, we don't let go with our emotions very easily. But that's the idea here is we're just excited. All of a sudden we found out that, that, uh, that God did something, and so we just shout with joy. The fifth, a fifth word is the word gil, which has the idea also of giving an, a shout or exalting or when it uses the word cultic cry, that's just academic language for uh, your, your, a praise to a, the worship of a god. In the, then we have the sixth use, which, use, which is the word seper, which is an interesting word because it's based on the word sefer or sofer, which has to do with counting. And it now it is a, a, the, the word safer means a book in modern Hebrew. It didn't mean a book in the ancient world. It was more of a of a scroll, 
or it was something that was that was written. But it has that idea in this form to declare something, to tell. That's what praise means, is to tell people what God has done. And, it, it, and then you have the word kaved. We've studied this before, kavod, the idea of something that is heavy or important. And it comes to mean glorifying or elevating somebody because you're showing how important they are. That's what uh, kavod means that's usually translated glory is you're talking about how important somebody is. So when we're praising God, we're talking about how important he is in our lives and to our lives and to everything that we've done. Uh, Eighth word is from the word, the root is gadol, which is a word we've studied before. It means great or large, but in this uh, form, it means to cause something to be enlarged, to cause something to be magnified. So to, to, to use hyperbole even to talk about how great God has done and, and exaggerated. And then the last word in my list of nine is romam, which is the word room. That's the root that we have here at the beginning, to exalt. Uh, no, I, sorry, there's one more. His care from zakar. Zakar means to remember. And so praise, you are remembering what God has done and reminding people what God will, can do in their lives. So all of these gives us, give us a, a much more complex picture of what it means to praise God. It, it elevates him. It magnifies what, it is, what he has done. It brings honor and glory to God and not to us. It reminds us of what God has done. Uh, we go back to, uh, to the previous list, and it can involve singing. It can involve telling or talking. It, it, it may be a, a form of a shout or exultation, but it's, it's not limited to just one way of maybe doing things. Now, one last thing, and then we it sort of summarizes all of this. The the word that has come, that came to to sort of summarize the thanksgiving offering, and the which is really called the praise offering, the todah. If you've been to Israel with me, you'll learn how to say boker tov, which means good morning, and todah, which means thank you. So that's what it's come to mean today is is thank you, but it's that's not really its original meaning. The original meaning is is declaring praise to God, and when you declare praise to God, what are you doing? You you are showing your gratitude uh, to what God has done. So this is a technical term for the praise offering, and Leviticus seven eleven on down to the end of the chapter focuses on this and it's the law of the sacrifice of the peace offering the peace offering is what is brought at the end because now that you have gone through confession with the sin offering trespass offering and you have uh, sort of restated your full commitment to God through the uh, burnt offering now the peace offering is a reminder that there's now harmony between you and God and the meal is shared with others that are around and so this is the peace offering, uh, Leviticus 7.12. If he offers it for a thanksgiving offering, a todah, then he shall offer with the sacrifice of thanksgiving unleavened cakes mixed with oil, 
uh, unleavened wafers, anointed with oil, cakes, or blended fire. In other words, we're going we're gonna to bake a lot of things, and everybody's going to get some of the pastries. Besides the cakes, as his offering, he shall offer leavened bread with the sacrifice of thanksgiving. It must have smelled good. You've had a burnt offering, so it smells like a good barbecue place. And now you've got all of this baking going on. And so the aromas that surrounded the, uh, the temple would have, uh, w- would have been great. And not only that, but the poor come in and eat. We, we talk about the, the economics of the law is that the poor could come in and you've just slaughtered this bull and you've got, uh, all, and you've, uh, got the burnt offering and then the peace offering. And all of this food is to be shared with the priests first and then with the, with the poor. And so they're given lots of groceries to take home under some of these uh, specific uh, offerings. Leviticus 7.14, And from it he shall offer one cake from each offering as a wave offering or heave offering to the Lord, and it shall belong to, that belongs to the priest who sprinkles the blood of the peace offering. Now, that is important because that is picked up, lest you think, okay, that's great, that's Old Testament stuff. When you get to Hebrews 13, uh, we read, Therefore, by him let us continually... Let us today in the church age offer the sacrifice of praise to God. When we are telling people what God did, and it's not about what we did, it's about what God did. This is a sacrifice of praise. It's the fruit of our lips. And how is it described? Not as singing, but as giving thanks to his name, to who God is and his character. And then the next verse says, but do not forget to do good and to share. What happens in the Old Testament with the peace offering is there's all this extra food and you share it with those who are less fortunate. You shared with the poor so that they receive grace by association. Do not forget to do good and to share for with such sacrifices, God is well pleased. So that gets us through the first couple of lines in the first verse. But it sets up the structure and it sets up the framework for being able to work our way through the rest of the psalm uh, a little more quickly. Father, we thank you for this opportunity to study these things and to be reminded that this kind of praise, talking in everyday language with all the people around us of what you do, to, and that causes us to be focused and thinking about what is it that God's doing in my life today? What, what are we thankful for today that God has done in intervening in our lives? And just the fact that we're here, that we're alive, that we have freedom, uh, those are things to be thankful for, that we have our health, that we have the ability to be in Bible class, that we have the freedoms and liberties that we have in this nation. And that's just a starting point because there are so many millions and millions of people on this planet Billions who have no freedom, no liberty, and no word of God. And yet we have that, and it's available to us every single day in so many different ways. Father, help us to be grateful and thankful for all that we have and all that you've given us. In Christ's name, amen.